Hello everyone, it's November 16th, 2021, and we gotta talk about Spin Launch, the latest in a long line of non-traditional ways of reaching orbit. But this one just might work, then again it just might not. It's a crazy concept, there may or may not be a few showstoppers, hard to say, so let's talk about it, and lift off! And we clear the tower. Welcome to episode 334 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we're kind of recording a little bit earlier today. Uh, I think we're all awake enough, right? <laughs> I've gone we'll through see. 90% of my coffee, so yeah. <laughs> okay. I'd like to think I am. I, I mean, if it were up to me, we, we would probably record at like 1 o'clock in the morning after I've been up all day, just because that's how I am. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be a disaster for me. <laughs> I just have this tendency to just stay up late because that's what... I just feel like that's when I feel the most awake is actually pretty late at night, as strange as that sounds. You must have a long internal cycle, like the, the day cycle. I think it's the same time period. It's just offset, right? So, Well, no, pe- people who are night owls tend to have a long internal cycle, and, and that's why they they wind up staying up later and later is because it takes them longer to get tired. And people hmm. who who aren't night owls tend to have a shorter one, so they tend to stick with the with the the cycle of of the sun or the earth's rotation and then you know some people even have a shorter cycle and so they wind up waking up earlier and earlier interesting okay huh i had no idea yeah i I didn't know that either well that's a cool little fact to learn (laughs) you're a martian that's all All right, so yeah, let's talk about Spin Launch, um, the craziest idea I've heard in a while. Um, Mm -hmm. What we're discussing is a test that occurred actually in October, um, but I guess the details are just being released now. So Mm. yeah, Spin Launch, um, did we ever talk about it before? Because it kind of came out of nowhere for me, and maybe I had just forgotten about it. Yeah, I feel like we have talked about it, but not not seriously or in depth. Well, I can certainly understand not talking about it seriously, because it seems kind of crazy to me at least i don't know about you but um <laughs> but the, i mean they had a pretty good first test here so maybe it's not that crazy after all mm. um but, but these types of ideas tend to just to me they don't seem very feasible but at the same time i feel like what they're learning is that maybe it's not quite so out there as you would think because well i guess we'll get into it but yeah mm-hmm. so that was just my first impression was you know this is strange and i'm surprised that it even worked this much but yeah ben like you said just before we started recording they haven't done any of the hard stuff first which i guess just means that they haven't ramped up power right well it, it, re- it really means that they're doing it the right way like let's be clear like mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm not expecting them to start with the hard stuff but well let's let's talk about what they've done before we talk about what they have to do in the future i guess we should talk about the test article right yeah the launcher i guess <laughs> i don't know what to call it <laughs> yeah and what spin launch is because we haven't actually said it but it is kind of like written right there on the tin like you launch <laughs> right. you launch vehicles by spinning them by swinging them around really quickly and then letting go that's pretty much how it works which again strange idea well i mean you know it, it's it, it is strange but it's not unprecedented right like we have you know we we've got this great idea or uh, um o'neill right came up with this mm-hmm. idea of using magnetic launchers on the moon. And, and that makes a lot of sense because the more of your launch infrastructure that you can keep on the ground, the better. Um, if, if you can launch something without having to speed up all of your launch infrastructure, like the first stage of a rocket, that's good. It, it, that's better than reusable. You know, The only problem is the moon doesn't have atmosphere and the earth does. And so any... Um, any catapult 
or a mag rail or what are they called? A, a rail gun, like anything that you do here on Earth, if you're going to keep that attached to the surface, then you're going to have all of these additional problems that come from uh, mostly the atmosphere. And so like it's ar- it's already a hard thing to do, but at least it's not it's not that bizarre to think about this as an idea, I guess. You know, I do remember us talking about it, probably not on the show, but this is like probably like a year ago. And, and I remember bringing that up, you know, I mean, that's like the big concern is you have to contend with the atmosphere. Plus, you have, you know, these pretty insane G loads. But hmm. I think the cool thing that we're finding out is that maybe that's not quite as much of a problem as well, we thought. Yeah, let let's keep let's keep going because I, I have I have capital O opinions on this. <laughs> okay, well, okay. So for this test, um, this is not the full scale version. They just had a thirty three meter diameter what would you call it launcher, and they just got it up to about twenty percent power, which apparently is about one hundred and eighty RPMs. So, which actually does not seem like very fast to me, but of course, when you have a thirty three meter diameter, you know, it kind of is. But even with that, they were able to achieve like supersonic speeds and they got tens of thousands of feet in altitude. They didn't specify exactly how high. I think that they're just keeping that to themselves, but yeah. they got, you know, a pretty decent altitude. One thing that I kind of didn't understand at first was why is this thing pointing straight up? Because that's not going to help if you're launching something into orbit. But apparently that's not going to be the case for, you know, the actual yeah. launcher. Um, mm-hmm. but for the test, yeah. This they're doing like suborbital launches when you very much would like your projectile to come back down. You know, not too far down range. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So let, let's talk about their, their spin launches. Cause I mean, like, that's the thing is we're like, okay, what do we call this launcher? I mean, it really is a spin launcher and it, it's, it just feels like we're stepping on their, on their name, but um, yeah, a flinger. So, so this was 20% of full power and then they're going up to, to higher power levels before they transition into their bigger, uh, their their bigger for real launcher is that right? Yeah. So apparently they're they're going to do something like a series of tests over six months. So they kind of want to just like gradually increase power, increase power, and test like all the various systems to make sure that nothing mm-hmm. breaks. Because obviously you wouldn't want to go full bore first time. Um, so I think that that is you know the correct way to mm-hmm. proceed. So yeah, they are doing sure. that right, just making sure that the various systems and components don't fail. Which I imagine if that did happen with something like this, it might be kind of catastrophic. Um, but but then again, the same can be said for rockets on launch pads um sure sure but i just i can just imagine this thing you know going off balance or something and then something i mean Mm -hmm. i don't know what would happen but it doesn't sound pleasant yeah well i mean they got to release it with a millimeter or sorry a millisecond of accuracy right yeah because it's right they're they're spinning it in the centrifuge and then you release it down the tube that i guess your cannon Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could easily see you miss that and then you're suddenly sending this thing at Mach something through the side of your cyclotron. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So, here's the thing. That's that's the easy part. Okay, David, keep going because I, I want to get like your next block of, of bullet points in first. Okay. Well, the next block is really just what the full-scale version would look like. So this would be something that would be launched at a coastal location, obviously, if you're putting something into orbit. The current test version is being done at the spaceport, right? The spaceport in New Mexico. But uh, this version would be at a coastal location. It would be angled. I don't know what, quite what angle looks like. Something like 45 degrees or maybe a little bit less than that. Yeah, the, it mm-hmm. look, it looks like, yeah, like 40 degrees. I mean, it kind of looks like a like a donut set on a on a very inclined driveway, you know. Like it's it, it actually looks way more comfortable than this smaller scale version standing completely upright. Because keep in mind, right? Like this was something I was thinking of. Right now, they've got the they've got the centrifuge sitting 
upright and the cannon aimed straight up. And you could just keep it, you know, the disc uh, upright and then just rotate it a bit to change True. the angle that the cannon fires at. But instead, they tip the entire launcher on its side at yeah. that 30, 40, whatever degree angle. So that, that's a good point. And I'm going to guess that it has something to do with the stabilization of the launcher itself. Because mm-hmm. if you have it on the ground, like if you have like more of it in contact with a hard surface, it might just make things easier than having it standing on its end. Mm-hmm. But that's a good point. I, I agree with you, David. I think that's that's part of it. Um, you want the house. You want to be able to support the housing instead of the housing supporting itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but also consider the plane that this thing is rotating in. If you have a failure, you probably don't want that plane to be vertical because then the greatest number of things are going to be flung the highest distance up in the air. Whereas if you tip this thing over on its side, more of it is going to be hitting the ground. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not true because more of it's going to get lofted up into the air, but it, it seems like horizontal speed might be better than vertical speed because even though it'll go farther, it won't, mm, I guess it would have longer to slow down if it was, if it was vertical. Yeah, I, I guess I guess it depends on the terminal velocity of all these things. It might just be the size. I mean, because the yeah. the full scale version is one hundred meters, so yeah. it's it just made it just easier. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. huge. I, yeah, it it really must come down to just how you're going to support the the structure. Get to put all, all of your your support material outside instead of having to have it flow through the the casing structure. And in their render, though, it's it's nestled into like you know a hill or something. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. pretty natural formation. But if they pick a coastal site. They'll have to pick certain ones that, you know, I mean, most of the East Coast of the United States is, you know, beaches and things like that. And so um, there aren't really that many hills. And things yeah, like yeah that. it's, it's that's bank. that's not uh, such a large hill that it would be hard to construct to just dump a bunch of I don't of know, dirt. 35 degrees and capable of supporting a structure that big? Maybe. Well, okay. you just have to pile dirt. <laughs> I thought Florida was very fast. Well, it is. But, yeah, you can pile up dirt and make a ramp. It's not a big deal. Mm. Yeah, they, they were yeah. able to build, you know, Starbase out in Texas. Like if they can do that, they can they can build a hill somewhere. <laughs> Sty has got the is on the same wavelength as me though. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, frankly, if they could just build the full scale model, that would be crazy enough, you know. Yeah. So it's one hundred meters in diameter. That's that's the full scale version, and it reaches about ten thousand Gs at peak, which is insane to me. Like <laughs> I can't imagine anything surviving that. And that's the interesting thing to me. Or that's the part that makes me go, is this feasible? But Apparently, um, 10,000 Gs is not that big of a deal, according to them, um, yeah, which I and, find surprising. The, the crazy thing is that it's not just like you go from you know 1G up to 10,000 Gs mm-hmm. in 10 minutes, and then you're off. Like Spinning this thing up takes hours, um, which, which is clever, right? Because you're, you're able to concentrate all of your energy over a long period of time and just keep adding to it and adding to it. And because this thing is, uh, is spinning in vacuum, there's not that much of a bleed off. You know, you're not losing a huge amount of energy to air resistance, just into the mechanical friction of of your bearings and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas like if you compare that to a rail gun, like for a rail gun, you have to have really huge, like frighteningly large capacitors um, that can store a lot of electrical energy and then dump it into um, kinetic energy 
in, in a very short period of time that this, this seems like uh, a very good solution in that sense. It's the low jerk option. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so they say they're capable of five launches a day and, and that's like, that seems like a very high cadence, but like, even that is something that you have to work up to because this thing takes hours and hours to spin up. So like five launches a day, I'm assuming is like, we've got our acceleration as high as it can go. We're launching it doing like, we're sweeping the place out real quick, slapping a new um, seal on the mouth and then getting the next load in there right away. So like, you know, five launches a day is really as crazy as it sounds, you know? Like th this is yeah. a lot of work to do that. But also, yeah, so you had mentioned how they have to put a seal over the exit tube there. I thought that was kind of neat because uh, that's holding, you know, the air out. So you have a vacuum because you have to obviously evacuate the air from the inside. So I'm wondering what that membrane is because it seems kind of large and yet it's holding, I don't know, it, it just seems like... It's hard to hold out tens of thousands of pounds of pressure. Well, you know. it can't. It, they're not spinning this thing in perfect vacuum. Let's be clear. Okay, I thought that maybe it was close to perfect. I, no, I, there's I no, no, no. You, your instinct, the the mouth of that thing is way too big to hold back that much pressure. It just, it can't. What about our favorite stuff, Tyvek? Can Tyvek do that? I don't know if it can. It, it, <laughs> no, Tyvek could hold back a pretty decent amount of vacuum. It's not airtight, right? It's going to leak. It's it's. You know, Tyvek is permeable to air. You know, if you have, it looks like they've got a couple of layers of something. So yeah, you know, you get a couple of layers and you're constantly pumping it down. Yeah, you could probably get a, a pretty good vacuum, but the mouth of these things, it's, it's a flat plane. It is not bowed in the way that, you know, <laughs> Tyvek stretched across that much. And, and also like Tyvek has got a really good, uh, tensile strength. You can hit it and break it, but you're going to lose a lot of momentum um, and it's going to, you know, donate some rotational <laughs> uh, inertia um, as you're breaking through it unevenly. So I, I, I got to imagine that it's something that it is brittle and you can kind of see it, it. It shatters rather than tears. So, you know, this is this is a material that they've put a lot of thought into, but there's no way that it's holding in you know, that much vacuum. And, and I don't think you would want it to, right? The the transition from uh, a very low vacuum to sea level, like that kind of shock can't be good for your rocket. Uh, do you necessarily need to just have that uh, membrane holding the vacuum the entire time or just have basically a little valve or something across the cannon part just below that? And then you release that a couple seconds before you launch. And then you just need that membrane to hold the seal for, you know, a few seconds. I, Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I don't think that there are very many real world materials that could hold uh, a vacuum well enough for a few seconds, but would not be able to hold it for a few minutes. Like that, mm, that right. doesn't sound right to me that like, yeah, in theory that that could be the case, but I don't think that there's any material that we have that fits all of these required um, uh, properties, but 
can only hold a vacuum for a few seconds before breaking. Like, eh, I, don't, I, I don't buy it. I think we need to get one of the Ben Ben Cruz on again to tell us more about materials, right. maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, I guess, yeah, so what does this thing put into orbit? It, well, it's about 200 kilograms, so it's a you know pretty small launcher. Um, and this is aboard a rocket. So they still are launching a rocket. They're just trying to get it up to a decent speed first. Um, but it's, you know, a pretty small-looking little vehicle. So the rocket is a two-stage rocket, and it runs on LOX and Jet A. So is that like jet fuel? Because usually yeah. it's RP-1. Okay, yep. so it's just jet fuel, probably pressure-fed, and it's passively stabilized. So very, very simple rocket. So they make the rocket portion very simple, which I guess also helps with saving costs. And it's, you know, something that you can do when you're having to take care of the hard part by just flinging it. Yeah. Mm. And, and we're really talking about taking care of the hard part. The numbers that they're trying to hit are basically like for this vehicle, right? Because if it's a bigger vehicle, it doesn't go as far with the same launch. But like with this vehicle, they're basically talking about getting this thing as high and as fast as a first stage Falcon One could do, if if we're talking about the uh, the steep ascent trajectory that a Falcon One or a Falcon Nine does um, when it's returning to the launch site to land, like th- this is an appreciable amount of power that it's dumping into this thing. So so this upper stage really doesn't have that much work to do compared to other upper stages. Like it's 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 a very standard you know, upper stage on a two-stage rocket kind of thing. So um, that part is is fantastic. Like, yeah, great. Use jet fuel, you know, um, use a yeah. pressure-fed system, um, make this thing as simple as possible so that you can maximize your payload, and, and, that, and that'll be just fine. You don't need anything more than that. So, right, everybody focuses on what happens when the vehicle leaves uh, the vacuum membrane. What happens when your rocket hits this wall of air? And David, you, you skipped over a point that you're like, okay, let's come back to this. And, and this is where we really start to show that as tough as it is to build a vehicle that can survive a launch like this, both the G's and the uh, aerodynamic heating and, and the shock and all that, that happens later. <laughs> First, you've got another problem uh, with this launch, and I don't want to steal your thunder, so go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I was pretty much done. So, yeah, I guess we should get back to what I suspect now is the real issue you might have with this, which is the launcher itself, right? Because you're releasing something that due to centrifugal force, right, weighs, I don't know how many tons, but a lot, and you're doing that within a split second. And what kind of forces is that going to impose on? the spin launcher. Is that kind of what you're curious about here? Not just curious, not just curious. I would say dubious of, right? Um, mm. Like it, it seems crazy to release uh, a rocket with the kind of fraction of a second timing that you need to get it flying in the right direction when you're spinning uh, so freaking fast. But that's not that's not the problem. We can do that clamps that can hold huge amounts of weight but can release uh with very precise timing we can do that that's that's just a matter of characterizing you know getting uh having a mechanism that does his job repeatedly and then you characterize it really well and then you're good you're done that that kind of timing is not it is not new, right? We, we do that kind of timing on a fairly regular basis. The crazy thing is then, yeah, having to rebalance the rotor and that rebalancing the 
amount of time that has to fit into is defined by how well this thing is able to not shake itself apart. <laughs> and like everybody has had uh, a washing machine that spins at what, like less than, I mean, it's less than 120 RPM, right? Like, I don't know, it, it maybe, maybe that's like, that. yeah, maybe that's like five or six times a second, right? Like mm. we're still measuring this in single Hertz and all it takes is for, you know, that one uh, fitted sheet to be wadded up on one side of the drum and your washing machine is going to tear itself apart. And, and granted, washing machines are built to have their drum float, right? They're, they're not supposed to be super rigid. They're supposed to be able to move because it's quieter when things are ba balanced. But imagine having your washing machine be a hundred meters in diameter. And instead of spinning itself up unbalanced to become unbalanced in the middle of this incredibly fast rotation, you, you can't move something fast enough unless you have a counterweight that you're releasing at the same time uh, and letting it slam into the dirt or something, which I can't imagine is, is their plan. You need to be able to, either break this thing very quickly, which poses so many additional problems, or you need to be able to move away from one side uh, or either from far away from the axle to closer to the axle, or you need to move it from one side of the axle to the other side of the axle and, and be able to do it in less than one revolution. And I don't think that there is a reasonable way to do that. I really don't. And, and that's what, really bothers me about this this whole idea is the problems that are apparent uh just you know readily apparent when you think about the idea are not the problems that they actually need to work to solve and i know that they're aware of all this i don't think that they're unaware of of what the challenges of their of their technique is going to be i i just don't know how they're going to solve it like almost every problem I can come up with a theoretical hand wavy explanation, like for, you know, the body of this rocket that gets flung out of the launcher, you know, you just go, yeah, it's, it's material science. They'll come up with something that can, that can withstand that heat. Maybe it'll be ablative. Maybe it'll, you know, be this or that. And okay. Like I wouldn't want to build and design it. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm sure they got this, you know, not, not that it's just material science, but it's like it's material science. Like it's magic anyway, right? Like I, I don't mm -hmm. understand how my Teflon pans work. Like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, we can, we can explain that away. But this is like, this is hard physics. This is like you, you have to either build like this bearing that can handle huge amount of lateral stress or you have to move a weight on the arm faster, like a weight that is greater than the mass of the rocket, right? Because if it's the mass of the rocket, then you have to move it from the axle all the way out to one end. So you'd rather use a bigger weight and move it a, a shorter distance. But like either way, you have to do an amount of work in a very short period of time in a very controlled way. And I don't know how they're going to do it. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Okay. <laughs> like I don't, even, I don't even think you could have a, a piston that is actuated by an explosion that could do this. 
I don't think you could slam something to the other side of the arm using an explosion and make it work. I don't, I think that takes too long. I think it's too destructive. Maybe, but when you consider the diameter and how fast it spins, which I mean is fast, but what was it we were saying? I think, well, what's the maximum RPM on the full scale version? I don't think actually I got that information. I bet it's not as high as you would think. I mean, it's spinning around that every second six times. So. Yeah. So here, it's something massive. Here's what that sounds like. Let me dump this into. Okay, that's not working. Okay, so I'm just gonna hold my headphones up to my mic, and and listen. This is this is what this sounds like. This is uh, seven hertz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's seven hertz. And imagine a fifty meter arm mm-hmm. swinging around that fast. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> uh, no. And, and considering that what they're doing right now is 180 RPM and this is 420 RPM. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, not happy with that. <laughs> it's a very good point. I, but I can only think that, like you said, they must, I mean, they're obviously aware of this and they must have thought of something to account for mm-hmm. that. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I, I'm sure, I'm sure they've thought of something. I don't believe that they've built it. Um, well, I'm and like, curious. Yeah. Like I, I, I always do this where I just go, uh, I, I rag on somebody and they say, but I'd like them to be able to do it. Like for real, I think this would be really cool. Like if we could actually have like, you know, one of these on each coast dumping out five launches a day, like that's, that's the future, right? That's insane. Uh, it's not something that people can touch. But, you know, like if we had uh, vehicles going to to Mars and back, like if we're, you know, if we're trading with Mars and the moon, this is what you'd have to do, you know, if you're going to get get a lot of things into orbit. I, I just, I don't see it happening. I, I don't think this is going to be the way that the future looks. But good Lord, what a show. Like, <laughs> like not, not only like a, like a show, like that you sit back and watch, but also like a show of force kind of turn. Like th- this is like this, uh, if you can do this, like this is engineering acumen in a, in a spinning donut, you know, like this is really cool if you can do it. So Sam in the chat uh, has got a really good point. Gerald Bull was working on gun launch from Earth before um, Gerard K. O'Neill came up with it, came up, came up with the idea for the mass driver. And Sam kind of qualifies this with a, as far as I can tell. And so I was like, wait, what? Like, like somebody was theorizing this on Earth first. And <laughs> Sam says, uh, not theorized. Uh, he was messing with a battleship gun at that point. Uh, what? That's crazy. Um, and then uh, Uncle Willie also kicks in that a, f- a few guns should be spoken about in any discussion of shooting things into orbit. Uh, the German V3, which um, I, I don't think was ever uh, brought into operation in a useful way. Although I guess the V2 never was really either. Um, it just, the, the guidance was, was too bad. Uh, harp, uh, light gas guns. Apparently Saddam Hussein was trying to build a, a light gas gun. And then Andrew Zandanowitz shot us an email talking about spin launch this week. And I thought he had a, a good point. He talked about the Nike Sprint uh, ABM missile. Uh, so it went from zero to Mach 10 in five seconds, which is a hundred G acceleration. And that thing racked up 6,000 plus degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, in surface temperature. So, um, like that, that portion's been done. And he actually linked us a, a video that I'll put in the show notes, um, where you can see the skin is like glowing, 
uh, like an incandescent light bulb. I mean, like, you know, inflagratory, like, I mean, it's, you know, it's incandescent. It's actually burning due to heat. And Sprint could get to a uh, hundred thousand feet in altitude. Um, and so Spin Launch is doing, uh, 250,000 feet apparently, which would be about Mach 10, which, you know, is, is pretty good, pretty close to what Nike Sprint was doing. So not, uh, well precedented, but at, at least, Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Sam, Sam says Harp was, was Butler's gun. Okay. Cool. Thank you. I didn't make that connection. And Sam also confirms that, yeah, uh, V3 had some subscale prototypes, um, but not, uh, not a real version. So like, I think what it comes down to is like all this precedent really tells you that we've tried this a lot before and have failed. Now our abilities are, are way better. We have both, um, you know, computer aided design and we have, um, composite materials that we couldn't have imagined, you know, 50 years ago. But, but like, mm, <laughs> when all your precedent is not pointing in the right direction, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we can, it, I don't know if this is something that we can do right now. I hope well, it is. That's the conclusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're going to be doing more tests over the next six months, I think it is. So, you know, we'll just have to keep up with it and wish them luck. And, you know, and I'm interested to, I, I mean, I'm sure that there'll be more talk about exactly this issue that you're bringing up. So we'll probably mm -hmm. find out more soon enough. Yeah. And like, I, I think it's good that you say this issue because, yeah, I, I am focused on one issue. <laughs> there are many more issues. <laughs> um, th this is a real challenge that they're taking on. And I think, I think it's really cool. Maybe it should have waited 10 years. I don't know. Um, maybe somebody in 10 years will have a better shot at doing it, but it doesn't matter. We're never going to know if we can do it or not until we try. And so I think right. it's fantastic that, that, that they're going for it. Yeah. So even though they're testing at a spaceport America, it was designed in Long Beach and it was built in Long Beach. So, you know, as a Californian, that makes me happy. I don't know. I wonder if like the data from this, even if it ultimately doesn't turn into a working, yeah. uh, <laughs> launcher that maybe you could use this data to figure out what is like the optimum uh, how 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 much <laughs> how fast how much do you want to balance the power of the launcher versus the power of the launch vehicle you know what i mean maybe or you know maybe you could do something where you get a little less ambitious of a spin launcher and then just put a more traditional rocket on there and it actually does become a useful thing to do but maybe not yeah it's also it's also at the wrong end uh, of where you really need power, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But I feel like that that's a compromise that they might very well make. So they'll spin slower, but they'll just build a little bit of a bigger rocket. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a, an equation that works out. I I think if, if you if you make the rocket heavier and s spin it slower, like oh, I see what you mean, though. Yeah, like yeah, because... you, you wind up you wind up with greater forces and slower speeds and no benefit you know, on the, on the orbit side of things, man. All right. Well, I think, I feel like we need to move on because we're not, I think we're going in circles here. No, no pun intended. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> so let's do three short and sweets. Ben, what is the first one? All right. Virgin orbit to launch from Japan. All Nippon airways and Virgin orbit have entered into a memorandum of understanding with Japan's largest airline procuring 20 Launcher One flights and providing funds and support for orbital missions from Japan's Oita Prefecture. A new set of mobile ground support equipment will be built to support the launches, which will take place from a pre-existing runway. This will be Japan's first launch 
capability from non-fixed sites, with Virgin Orbit planning to fly the 747 launched rockets by 2022. Next up, Amazon to launch first Kuiper satellites on AVL rocket. A launch deal has been reached between Amazon and AVL Space Systems, with the latter providing the launch vehicle for multiple Project Kuiper satellites. These launches, slated for the fourth quarter of 2022, will serve as an on-orbit testbed for Amazon's eventual mega-constellation, which aims to compete with others in the LEO broadband internet satellite market. The company had previously ordered nine Atlas V rockets from ULA to help build up their constellation. The California-based ABL is preparing for the first launch of its RS-1 vehicle from Kodiak Island later this year, and will use its $1.3 billion in raised funds to scale production with the goal of eight launches in 2022 and 16 in 2023. And then lastly, South Korea to develop a reusable launch vehicle. Industry insiders were surprised to learn that South Korea is planning to develop a reusable rocket, a capability nowhere seen in the government budget request of 2022. Starting next year, the Korean Aerospace Research Institute, or CARI, will begin work on the launch vehicle, which will use a cluster of liquid-fueled 100-ton thrust engines. This rocket is considered necessary to fulfill the country's ambitions of launching a robotic lunar lander by 2030 and building the Korea Positioning System by 2035. This announcement comes on the heels of the maiden launch of KSLV-2, Korea's first domestically built rocket, which is single-use and less powerful than the reusable rocket will be. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. We have a slight correction, I'm assuming, from a the upcoming spaceflight events mm-hmm. section. Yeah, so this was last week, and this is just a Starlink launch that apparently had 53 satellites in its Starlink batch and not 60. Yeah, we said we said 60, and like this is not to say this isn't our fault, but we were reading copy that was bad. <laughs> um, mm. But like at first, I was like, "Geez, come on!" Like that, this is never- it's actually a 10% difference, which is uh, a, a that's an appreciable difference. Um, and, and so what's interesting, I, I went and looked this up. I found a, a different fact that I think is more interesting than the actual number of, uh, of satellites on this uh, launch. They, they've been doing 60 Starlink launches for a long time as they were filling uh, their initial orbits. Um, and then this launch was 53. The launch before this was 60, and then the two before that were also fewer than 60. Uh, and of course, you, you have a couple of launches that have, you know, five or 10 because they were just, uh, filling out, uh, mass capability on, uh, on, on bigger launches. But what's really cool is I don't think any of us noticed the name of this mission. It was 4-1. The reason it's 4-1 is because it's the first launch of the fourth shell that they're filling out. And of course, their their shells are numbered backwards. Uh, shell number one is the highest altitude. Uh, shell two is lower than that. I think shell three and four are between one and two. So I mean, it's it's not it's not easy enough for me to remember. So <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a little chaotic. But yeah, this this is the first launch of their fourth shell that they're filling out. So yeah, you get, you get different altitudes on average. If you, if you have these different shell heights, they also, um, each shell transmits in a, in a different frequency. Um, I think like shell four can do S and C, but shell three only does S and something like that. But yeah, this, this is the first launch of their fourth shell and, and they did 53 instead of 60. I don't, I don't know why they're going into a lower altitude. I wonder if they had something else on board or if. You know, if it's just that there are fewer satellites in the lower shells. But thanks, Ben. I, I appreciate this 10% uh, correction. 10, 10% is a lot. All right. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. While we have 
four winners. We have uh, we have Jessica Miller, Caleb Hill, Kyle Foster, and Ben Howard. They all get full credit. Uh, they all guessed the correct event. So the clue was, I refuse to work under these conditions, or at least my stomach does. And um, I thought that was a pretty good clue, pretty obvious one if you're, you know, inclined to, you know, search for what this could be in reference to. Uh, but the event is uh, November 16th, 1973, and it was the launch of Skylab 4. This was the last of the Skylab missions. This was actually the third crewed Skylab mission, right? So we had talked about this before, how it's kind of offset and it's kind of confusing. So this is, it's called Skylab 4, but it's the third crew. Keep that in mind. What's interesting is that they actually had mission patches that I believe says Skylab 3 on them um, because of a miscommunication. So that's kind of weird. So this was the last mission in a 24-week run, and it was the last chance to essentially accomplish any objectives that they hadn't gotten to. So basically, NASA has all these things that they want to do you know, when you put astronauts into orbit, and this was their very last chance to do so. Um, and that will come up later as to why that ended up being a big problem. So the Skylab vehicle itself had been in orbit for, like I said, well, it was meant to be crewed just over the span of 24 weeks, but they actually thought about launching Skylab 4 sooner than later because they wanted to do a hot swap with the crew of Skylab 3 because they didn't want to leave the station unattended because there were constant system breakdowns and so forth. And so they just kind of thought that if, you know, if something goes wrong that makes the station unrecoverable, that would be bad. So they just wanted to have people there at all times. But but they actually grew in confidence. They said, you know, I think we got this under control. So they uh, decided to go about, I think it was about a month before they launched uh, the last crew. So it was uncrewed for about a month, give or take like three or four weeks. But uh, yeah, things were constantly breaking, um, which is also going to come into play again. Uh, so the launch was pushed to November 16th. And this was partly because of an opportunity to investigate a comet that was approaching perihelion, a comet called Kohutek or Kohotek. I'm not sure how to say it. But let's talk about the crew. So one interesting thing about the crew is that they were all a rookie crew. And this hadn't happened since, I think, one of the Apollo missions. I don't remember which one, but it was the one where Neil was... Neil Armstrong, who had gotten, they had a stuck valve on a thruster, and they you got meant, spun up. You meant um, Gemini. Gemini. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not Apollo. You said Apollo, but, but you described Gemini. <laughs> yeah. Gemini is Gemini's the one that I mean. So, uh, yeah, this was the first rookie crew since then, um, which is a thing that doesn't really happen, I think, anymore at all. You always have one person who has at least flown previously. Mm -hmm. uh, but this was their first and it was their only space flight. So just a one-time crew, which is pretty neat. Um, it was commanded by Gerald Carr. And then you had uh, the science pilot. I'm not sure what that means, but I imagine it's kind of like a payload specialist. And that was Ed Gibson. And then the actual pilot was William Pogue. Bill Pogue, I think is what they called him. But yeah, I'm not sure what a science pilot is. Uh, I think maybe that's an just, old term. Maybe just because it's Skylab, so they needed to shoehorn yeah. <laughs> science into one of the and roles. they didn't have officially. specialists back then, right? Okay. Okay. Well, they didn't have the term here, yeah, but I feel like that's the easy one to come up with. You just call them. <laughs> mm. They're like, yeah, it's just commanders and pilots. Well, then you're the science pilot and you're the, <laughs> you're like the medical pilot. So this launched on a Saturn 1B and uh, I had talked about, I think by very last this week in space flight history, the Saturn 1. So this is just, you know, a slightly modified version of that. So it did launch from the milk stool. And one crazy thing that happened just before launch during a fuel load test was that uh, some of the vents that were covered up in order to prevent rain from getting in. They were actually sucked in, and this caused the dome of the tank to buckle, which is crazy okay. because in, they fixed it by just reinflating it. Just blowing hard enough. That doesn't sound safe to me, but I guess they determined that it totally was, and they just said, all right, we'll just go for it. Yeah, as, lo as long as it's steel and not aluminum, right? Aluminum, the 
that stress would just <laughs> make it crumble, but I guess steel is fine. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering. I figured no matter what kind of metal it was, you would have like, what do they call it? Like work stress? Is it yeah, the right term? Good, yeah, good uh, hmm. good recall. But yeah, anyway, that was one issue. The other one were the fins on the first stage. Uh, they had to be replaced due to cracks. And this was probably because the vehicle uh, had been resting on the pad because, again, they might have to rescue the Apollo or, I'm, I'm sorry, the Skyhab 3 crew because things were kind of going wrong on the station, so that they always wanted to have a backup crew ready to go. Now, I don't know if it was on the pad the whole time, but at least for you know certain portions, uh, they had it out there on the pad. And then I guess once the Skylab 3 crew came back, they put it back in the hangar. But either way, there were cracks that had developed, because uh, the Saturn 1B does actually rest on the fins. So yeah, you can kind of see how cracks would develop, because these are one-time-use vehicles, and so that probably includes just a one-time placement of it on the launch pad. So they actually replaced each one of those one at a time because you have eight fins. So they would just take one out, swap that one, then they would go to the next one and they just went around and uh, they just replaced You stick them a broom all. under there to take the weight. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I mean, presumably the other seven could take the weight, yeah. yeah but if not, I, I, su- I, su- but I suppose a broom would also work. <laughs> you, you just are, you've already got a milk stool, like <laughs> just imagine. Like, just some other household items. I mean, heck, you know, Soyuz has got brooms that are required to, to ignite it, so like matchsticks. So, um, But yeah, they had a pretty uneventful flight to orbit, and they got to the station. And the first night, they spent in the CSM, and this is to prevent space sickness. And uh, so this is something that Mission Control you know, has them do, and something that NASA had determined, I guess, and this was the first occasion where they would have to make such a consideration. That would be with Skylab, because it's such a large vehicle. So they thought that being inside a large cavernous space would cause you to kind of get more sick, I suppose. Um, I don't know if that's even true. I'm not sure why the space around you would make much of a difference if that would affect your vestibular system in some different way. But uh, suffice to say, it didn't help at all because uh, Pogue still got sick. And then that was followed by Carr. Now, Pogue was known, or he was called the Iron Belly because he never got sick on the little spinny chair thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you couldn't make him sick, but then he gets to orbit, and, that's, and he's the first one to get sick. And then Carr gets sick, and actually, um, I believe Gibson got sick a little bit later too. So they weren't doing well right there at the outset, but they were afraid of mission control like overreacting and they knew that they had a lot of work to get done. So they basically hid this fact from mission control. Uh, the problem was that there was a data voice recorder in the CSM that was still running and the whole thing was recorded and transmitted. And so they didn't know that they were being listened to. Um, <laughs> and I and I don't know if this is standard practice to have the data voice recorder constantly running, um, but I guess maybe they forgot or maybe they thought that it was just turned off. Um, but mm. either way, they were kind of caught red-handed, you know, essentially conspiring to not, you know, say anything. Um <laughs> And this got them in trouble. So of all people, like Alan Shepard gets on the horn and chews them out. I believe the exact words used were that they were read the riot act, you know, which is a way of saying that they were. Yeah. So it wasn't pretty. And they felt a bit, I don't know, embarrassed that their hero was basically chewing them out and for all the world to hear, too, because this is all public. Like you can go back and read transcripts and so forth. Um, So. That was not a good look. But the reason, again, is because they had a lot of work to get done. So let's talk about the workload. So this was a larger than normal workload since, again, this was the last mission. And there was a lot of tasks that were added at the last minute and they didn't get much training. Um, and this is because the fourth crew basically had to 
make way for the second and third crew. So yeah, those crew took precedent. Um, so Skylab 4 didn't get much training at all. Um, and indeed, one morning they received a 60-foot, literally a 60-foot-long list via the teleprinter, which is a pretty cool device. And they still <laughs> had to sort through this and, you know, figure out who was going to do what and all that. So let's talk about some of these specific tasks aboard. Now, these are not the actual things that they were already scheduled to do. This is like some extra stuff that kind of happened. So this is, you know, sort of like extra work that that is being piled onto them or things that they just have to address. So on the seventh day, there was a coolant leak in the air system and this is for the EVAs because you have this long umbilical so that had to be fixed before the EVA which was also on the same day uh, but they also found some mildew in the EVA suits because they hadn't been cleaned well enough by the previous crew so that's kind of gross so they had to actually scrub those <laughs> clean before they could even use them and there was a lot of stuff that was left on the station that you know it wasn't the most well-kept environment um, there are some things that were lost and in fact um, at one point Jack Lausma had to he was called at home while he was mowing the lawn because they needed to know where he left something on the station. So that's like the world's biggest, you know, like, hey, where'd you put that stapler? You know, like if you get a call from work, I don't know what the object was, but they needed, but apparently they needed it badly enough to call him at home and say, hey. But anyway, um, they had to do a film swap in uh, the Apollo telescope mount that had to be done on the first EVA. They also had to fix an antenna. Uh, or they actually had to replace it, or they had to fix it, I believe, that they didn't have to replace it, but um, uh, they fixed it by basically locking it into place because it was kind of swinging around because it was having some gimbling issues. Um, so they had to do that as well. Uh, then they had some control moment gyroscope issues as well. So they have three on board the station and you need two in order for it to work. And you just have the, you know, the third one is a backup, which is, you know, very common, but they were having problems with two of them. Uh, so they basically decided to not put as much work on them. So this meant that they had to uh, keep their movements to a minimum for one thing. So they couldn't do the thing where like you run around the inside uh, the inner circumference of the station, which is something that they mm -hmm. were doing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that was just for fun or if that was some kind of an experiment. Let me go back to the antenna. That was for uh, the EREP, which was the Earth Resources Experiment Package. Now, this was in order to take observations of the Earth's oceans, and I believe it was actually in cooperation with NOAA, uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, but in order to take the readings that they needed to, they had to flip the station. And of course, to do that, you need the control moment gyros. You could also use the onboard fuel to do so, but they were already running kind of low and they did not want to take that risk. So they basically mm. just said, we're going to cut back on the number of the EREP experiments that we're going to do. Um, mm. They also had some Star Tracker issues. Um, this was in part because there was a lot of stuff that was coming off of the station. So they were getting a lot of false locks and the Star Tracker couldn't tell the difference between stars and I guess, you know, little bits of ice or whatever. So they supplemented this with sextants. So they actually use sextants on orbit, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. I still don't know how to use a sextant. <laughs> One other thing to know is that the Skylab 3 crew, the previous crew, they had exceeded workload expectations. So there is this pressure on the 4 crew, you know, that they still want to do just as well, if not better, because that's just how astronauts are. Um, the Skylab 3 crew was known as the 150% crew, and uh, they actually skipped a lot of their free time, you know, which is like their downtime, and they just kept on working, and they did very well. The Skylab 4 crew, not so much. <laughs> um, they tried. <laughs> Uh, but they were basically being overworked and overburdened. Uh, they had more work to get done than, you know, the previous two crews. The number of EVAs they had to make grew from two to four. 
They also have their half-hour morning briefings, which is not a big deal. It's like 10 minutes just during an orbital pass. Um, but still, that's I guess 10 minutes is a big deal to you when you don't have any free time. Right. Um, because they were working 16-hour days, and they were skipping their rest days as well. So basically, it's like you know working seven days a week, 16-hour days. You can imagine uh, that can get to you. Especially when you're in space and everything takes twice as long. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not an ideal situation. Um, the daily exercise routine was increased from 60 to 90 minutes. But, uh, in fact, this is something that Ed liked because he liked, you know, getting on there and getting blood into his legs. Oh, and incidentally, they did have that. They were testing out, what was it? The pants, you know, those space pants that pull blood. Yeah, the legs? negative pressure. Yeah, the mm, negative pressure. Pants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had those, but they didn't like them. So they just didn't do that one. They actually kind of gave up on that because they weren't getting a lot of good data back. So they just said, screw that. Cause it was also very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best way to get blood towards your legs is apparently to exercise. So the crew, this is very interesting. This just goes to show how mission control maybe didn't have their psychological well being in mind. Uh, they were getting instructions to do more stuff even after their dinner time and even after their sleep period. And this is crazy that this was done. But basically, a mission control could tell when they were up because they could, you know, sense the movement on station due to um, the rate gyro data. So yeah. they could tell by that data that, you know, something was, you know, like moving around. So someone must be up. So, hey, why not make a phone call and say, hey, can you take care of this other little thing that we uh, have lined up for tomorrow? So that just seems rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we can kind of see where this is going. Um uh, they're very much overworked at this point. On top of that, they were being heavily micromanaged. Um, and indeed, um, oh, and I should have gotten who made this quote. I believe the quote was from Ed Gibson, uh, who is the only, he's the only one of these three who is still alive. And he said that it wasn't constructive and we weren't getting things done because we couldn't use our own judgment, which is basically the definition of what being micromanaged is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's so bad because you can't use your own judgment to accomplish a task. And so that just makes doing the tasks th- that much harder. And this kind of created a feedback loop where they weren't getting things done because they were being micromanaged, which caused mission control to micromanage them just even more. They just didn't understand the nature of what was going on. So this is where the clue comes in, right? Which is I refuse to work under these conditions. There is this myth about a strike. Just to get it out of the way like at the top of the segment here, that didn't happen. Right. There was no strike. There was no mutiny. Um, I think it was also called a space mutiny. Um, but that's, you know, that yeah, was never it's, a thing. It's a catchy phrase, but that doesn't mean that it's true. That didn't happen. There was no strike. So what actually happened was, and there are differing reports on which one of these occurred. But basically, the crew says that they basically, you know, they have to do these morning briefings with the ground. And they were taking turns like doing so because they realized that they didn't have to all be there, that they, you could just have one guy doing it. Then the other two could go and do, you know, some other stuff or whatever. Um, but they kind of got their rotation mixed up and no one was there for the ground pass. And they didn't, you know, sign on like no one. They just didn't check in. But that's just a one orbit window you know so that's like what like you know they just didn't check in for you know like maybe a couple hours so it actually wasn't a big deal they didn't go on mutiny for a whole day because again it was just an oversight and it was just a couple of hours that's what actually happened the other thing that might have happened is um mission control says that they got mixed up with the time off that they had given the crew which up until now they hadn't been taking but they said hey go ahead and take some time off and they got the day wrong that could also be what had happened so um it's not entirely clear which it was. Um, but of course, what happened was 
the media ran with the whole strike headline because that, I guess, sells newspapers. And so the myth was born. But again, there was no strike. But I think it's uh, interesting that, I don't know, that uh, this kind of misinformation can get out and then it just doesn't go away. And the crew was not happy with that because they they were never able to live it down. Um, That's kind of the first thing that always comes up. But it's like, no, there was no strike. We had a lot of work to get done. Why are you bringing this up again? You know, it was just a simple oversight. So I can totally see how frustrating that can be. After all this happened, they had a candid discussion with Mission Control, and they discussed a better way to go about getting these tasks done. Uh, They stopped micromanaging them. um, And from that point forward, things went a whole lot more smoothly. Uh, The crew also started taking their time off that they had, um, you know, just getting some rest. And once they started doing that, they were able to um, get things done at a much faster rate. Plus, they were able to cut down on the time off as well because they just didn't need it. So work smarter, not harder, as they say. Yeah, there you go. It's it's totally true that like when when you push yourself really hard, your efficiency or your productivity drops at a certain point. And it's just, you know, you can work for 24 hours straight, but you're not going to get as much done as if you worked 12 hours and then slept 12 hours. You know, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Got, got eight hours of sleep in there. They actually ended up accomplishing more than the Skylab 3 crew. So good for them. Uh, they accomplished their goals and they beat, you know, the 2 and 3 crew. Um, this is probably also because they simply had more time on orbit. Uh, they actually set a record of 84 days in orbit, which was not broken until 1978 by the Soviets. That's a pretty cool uh, record right there. And then another one, which is even cooler and kind of surprising to me, is that the Skylab 4 command module held the record for the longest space flight of a spacecraft until it was broken by the Crew Dragon and resilience. So that's crazy. But when you think about what was available during the interim, which was the space shuttle, like you couldn't keep a space shuttle up there for that long. So actually, of course, uh, the record wouldn't be broken for several decades. But still, it is kind of surprising or just weird to see that how you set a record in the 1970s and it's not broken until 2020 or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. It's, yeah. <laughs> like you said, it makes sense too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and uh, from there... Uh, I guess that's pretty much it. So, yeah, there was no mutiny or strike in space, just a little bit mm. of sickness followed by a heavy workload, uh, which would make anyone miserable. Um, <laughs> but they fixed it like professionals. They just had to, you know, come clean, which is another important lesson also that, you know, if you're being overworked, tell your boss and say, hey, things are just going to get worse. So I need a little bit of time off and we need to discuss how we're going to proceed with the work that has to get done. Yep. I think someone at NASA said that this was the first uh, time that they had to consider the us versus them mentality that develops, uh, mm-hmm. which happened aboard mm-hmm. Mir on the Russian side. And uh, um, but, you know, from that point forward, they were much more mindful of the crew's psychological well-being because yeah, because when you mentioned this like the first thing that came to my mind is apollo 7 my boy wally shira got real upset i'll say at uh mission control and he basically just told them to go to hell i'm gonna <laughs> do what i what i don't what i want to do i think it had to do with like wearing a a, a helmet on uh re-entry or something and uh but this was after like a whole series of him getting like more and more progressively fed up with uh mission control and mm-hmm. so there was a lot of conflict he knew he was going to retire and so you just kind of, you know, told them to go to hell, uh, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not really, but it was definitely some conflict there, but still not a strike at all. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, and 
the the other myth about this, I, I guess it's kind of like goes along with it, is that these three astronauts, they only flew once. And there was this myth that was floating around saying that they only flew once because they were being punished mm-hmm. for going on strike. But that was not the case. They just never went back to space again. They, I mean, they had other careers and right. interests. And this was just before the shuttle program. So they had to wait for that to get going. And that was still some years away. And they didn't want to wait to fly again so they just left nasa essentially Mm -hmm. because like if you can't be an astronaut then why or if you can't go into space then why be an astronaut Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's the actual reason (laughs) yeah yeah and i also heard a lot of the apollo people kind of recognized and appreciated the passing of the torch you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like there were enough of them that stuck around to be the first generation of commanders but a lot of them i think were kind of like yeah no you know i did my time you know i flew apollo now Mm -hmm. let's let the next generation the next crew the next classes take over and kind of run the shuttle program well awesome thank you david thank you for setting the record straight yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like you said there's there's so much to skylab 4 but i feel like you still covered so much (laughs) yeah and let me mention i almost forgot so if you want a better encapsulation of everything that happened or a better recounting of the tale there's a good podcast that i may have mentioned on the on this show before which is called uh the space above us um hosted by Mm. uh i believe his name is jp burke um it's Mm. a great podcast and it's basically like if you took this week in space history and turned that into a whole podcast that's what that is recounting historical events but with a lot of detail and he did like a two-part episode on skylab 4 it's really good so i would highly recommend checking that out um or just check out the podcast in general because he's he, he just got a lot of great tales to tell but yeah it's just the kind of podcast that you want to listen to if you are into having a narrative constructed around these various events and getting all the facts um certainly much more detailed than we do with our little segments so check them out yeah this looks amazing i'm looking at, i don't need another podcast but i have to start listening to this these titles sts 69 sts 70 sts 71 yeah. <laughs> like oh my goodness it's shuttle heavy well, especially thank you for that. Uh, we'll certainly have that in the show notes. So, Ben, next week is the 23rd through the 29th of November. Do you have a clue for us? Yeah, this is one of those clues where I'm not sure if this is going to be helpful. So I, I initially had a shorter clue and then I tacked on some extra information. So hopefully this is going to uh, <laughs> somebody's going to be able to figure this out. All right. Next week in 1965, the clue is unmitigated Gaul in the face of invading Romans. That, uh, I have no idea, uh, unsurprisingly, but I certainly like where you're going with that. Well, if you have the Gaul to take a guess <laughs> at this, uh, next week in 1965, uh, send us a, uh, you know, tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF or send us an email and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We've got six of those, so a lot going on. And Dennis, what's the first one? Yeah, I'll say, first up, we have a preview briefing for Spacewalk. So on November 17th, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, keep an eye out for NASA TV to have a, uh, again, uh, this is uh, ISS, uh, U.S. ISS Spacewalk number 78. And so the preview briefing for that, uh, always fun to watch. They really, really break it down into good depth with good graphics. All right, so after that, we have like the continued launch window for Astra. Um, I think last time we talked, we were looking at the 14th or the 15th of November, um, and, and they got they got bumped back. And, and I'm not sure why. I think at this point, we're just looking at TFRs. But now they are targeting uh, uh, just about a 24-hour launch window. So this is Astra's Rocket 3.3 flying STP-27 
Alpha Delta 2 because 2782 is ambiguous. Um, and this is, uh, you know, one of these uh, mass simulators that I contend is probably actually a, a cheap satellite, but I, I guess we'll find out. Hopefully this one makes it to orbit. Um, and the, the launch window is from Friday, November 19th at 0500 UTC to Saturday, November 20th at 0830 hours UTC. And as always, they're launching out of the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska, uh, and uh, they are out on Launchpad 3B because that's, that's their pad. Uh, good luck, Astra. Um, remember, we go up, not sideways. <laughs> Then after that, on the 20th, uh, we have the release of the Northrop Grumman Ellison Onizuka, which is a Cygnus spacecraft, uh, the NG-16 cargo craft. So that will be departing the International Space Station at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. and that'll, But the coverage will begin at 1045. So, uh, so yeah, 15 minutes beforehand, then you can watch the release of a Cygnus. Yep, check that out if you like watching Cygnus's come back. And I don't think that there's any Sapphire experiments on this one, I don't think. And then on November 21st, we have a space event that you can't quite watch, but it's fun to be aware of, and I love these numbers. And so this is the Parker Solar Probe Perihelion number 10. And so this is the first one at this new uh, orbit uh, when it was it lowered its perihelion after a Venus flyby. And now it's getting within 8.5 million kilometers of the sun and traveling 163 kilometers per second or 364,621 miles per hour. Uh, they also are starting to run into an issue where the dust is striking the spacecraft so <laughs> aggressively that plasma bombs are essentially being detonated and they worry about little flecks of stuff maybe coming hmm. off and getting lodged in some of the cameras. Wow. They're they're getting hard enough with dust that the dust is turning into plasma? Mm-hmm. Wow. Which is a fancy way of just saying just, you know, vaporizing entirely. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it but but it's it's the dust is going from a solid state of matter to a different state. It's not just the the solar plasma that's kind of floating around that close anyway. Exactly. So you're saying, yeah. So you're saying it's like the the kinetic energy of the impact that's causing that to turn into plasma. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's got to be that. You know, three hundred sixty thousand miles per hour. Because remember, dust dust is you know it might be small, but it's very much it's macroscopic in 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 a a, you know in a planetary science context. You know what I mean? Like it's a little uh, a little chunk, a little nugget that you could you know that has who knows how many Avogadro numbers worth of molecules. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, hundreds certainly. Wow. Jeez. Go PSP. Okay, after that, we have DART flying. Yay! This is the double asteroid redirection test. Uh, we mentioned Didymus and Diddy Moon earlier in the show. I don't know if that's going to make the cut. Um, but yeah, DART is going to go uh, smack into Diddy Moon, uh, which is in like a one kilometer orbit-ish around another asteroid called Didymus. They're, they're actually both Didymus, Didymus A and B, so, but like, I can't get over the diminutive of Diddy Moon. I think it's, I think it's lovely. So I'm going to continue to call it Diddy Moon because uh, mm-hmm. uh, more professional people than me have called it that. So that means it's absolutely okay for me to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the launch is happening on top of a Falcon 9 Block 5 on Wednesday, November 24th at 0620 UTC. I believe this is um, landing... I was going to say, uh, just read the instructions, but it's Vandenberg. Oh, 
yeah, Vandenberg is, of course, I still love you, right? And that launch is going to be happening out of Vandenberg. Uh, always cool to see SpaceX launching uh, so close to my hometown. Um, that's uh, Slick4E is is where they're launching out of. Cool. And then after that, on November 24th, is the launch of a Soyuz with Prechal. Uh, which we determined is the Russian word for dock, I believe. Dock, birth. Docker, uh. yeah, dock or birth. This is a module that will be, I guess, itself docked to the Nauka module. And uh, this is uh, to allow for visiting Russian vehicles. And, and not only that, it, it's so it's also known as a node module. It's got um, radial docking nodes or docking ports uh, ar- mm-hmm. around the outside. So, and And can I use this opportunity... To uh, give a shout out to uh, Andrew Z, uh, who emails us with all these great things all the time. And he sent a video, a YouTube video of Thomas Pesquet giving a tour of the station. And I've never, I haven't finished it yet, but I've never seen such a detailed tour of the Russian orbital segment. Hmm. Um, at, right off the bat, he starts at uh, Zvezda. Even the first five minutes, I can already say it's a strong recommend for me, at least. And okay. Thank you, right. Andrew, <laughs> for sharing that. So the pre module will be docking after next week's show on the 26th. So um, if you can remember, keep an eye out for that. If not, we'll probably mention it again anyway. Oh, we will. Yeah, it, it'll get mentioned for so, sure. But yeah, the launch time for that, uh, for this uh, launch, again, on the 24th at 1306 uh, UTC. And that is launching, of course, from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. So, yep, good luck to them. And hopefully there will be no mishaps since this mm-hmm. is something to do with Nauka. So let's hope the, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> let's hope the, let's hope the curse is worn off. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So let's do it with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Sam Stein-Deathkin for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.